Hi. That was good. That was great. That was great. Good morning. Good to see you. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, my name is R.D., and if it's a holiday, you know I'll be preaching. So it is good to be with you uh, anytime you get to preach uh, God's Word. If you're visiting uh, town, uh, welcome. We're in a series called True, uh, studying in 1 John, and we're looking at true spirituality, true Christianity, what it looks like to know God, how you come to know God, and when you come to know God, how you actually follow Him, right? How do you know, and then how do you know that you know? And these are like some of the biggest questions that exist in the world. How do I come to know God? Um, and if there is a God, how can I please him? How can I follow him? What does it look like to be a person of real spirituality, of real, of real faith? Because in culture, there are multiple definitions of that. And even in the church, there are multiple ways that we express that. And so our series looks at a book of the Bible written by a man to a church. And he's saying, hey, this is what it looks like to be a true follower of Jesus. And this is what it doesn't look like. So let's just be clear about uh, this is who God is, this is what truth is, and then this is how we follow and obey that truth. And that's John the pastor writing his book of 1 John. So I thought, though, I'd begin with a quote that kind of, I think, illuminates what most people in our culture believe about God and how you please God. And it's from Michael Bloomberg, who was the former mayor of New York City, and he just retired after eight, I think longer than that, a long time. And he was doing an interview with the New York Times where he was reminiscing that a lot of his friends had recently passed away. And the writer of the article comments, and then here's the quote from Mayor Bloomberg at the end here, which I thought is illuminating about a worldview of how you obey God. But if he senses, Bloomberg, that he may not have as much time left as he would like, he has little doubt that what would, aw what would await him at a judgment day. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he said with a grin, Mayor Bloomberg, I am telling you if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Right? And far from that being an abnormal viewpoint, deep down, a lot of us either think that sometimes that the way in which I live my life, if it's good enough, somehow in the end, it just, it works out, right? That, that my works somehow justify me before God. And what Christianity says is that, no, you are justified by an act of God, and then obedience follows that. Not, I obey God, therefore I'm justified, right? Salvation comes first, and then obedience. We don't obey God for God to love us. We obey God because he loves us. We don't earn our way to heaven, right? Mayor Bloomberg could not be more wrong about what Christianity teaches, right? What religion really teaches at its core is Jesus. But this is kind of the worldview, that, that true spiritual persons are basically morally, ethically nice people, and that's the way in which to live your life. And John is going to say that's part of it, but that's not really it. That's not the essence of what it means to actually be a Christian. It's just to be an ethically kind person, because there are a lot of people like that who don't know Jesus, there's something else at the core of who we are. There's something else at the core of spirituality, which is truth, that separates us from others. And so if you have a Bible, we'll be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We're going to start in verse 3, though, and then come back to the first two at the end. Verse 3. John's writing to his church. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his 
commands. So he's making it very clear. You know that you know God if you follow God. Right? Look at the lives of those who say they follow God, and if they're actually following God, it will show up in their fruit. It will show up in the way in which they're living. But before we can follow the commands of God, we actually have to know who God is. Otherwise, what commands are we following? Right? It's not enough to just follow random commands if you have no idea who the person is that you're following. And so we have to back up a little bit and say, how do we come to know God before we can say how we follow God? How is it that we come to obey God? And what John wants to show us is that we come to know the truth about who God is and that truth in Christianity is not just a set of ideas or principles or doctrine. Truth is a person and truth has flesh and blood and truth is actually Jesus, right? Jesus is the way, he is the truth and he is the life. And that an encounter with the truth is what ultimately changes your life. And that when you obey the truth, that happens when the truth actually lives in you, not just outside of you. It's not just something that you're seeking, it's something that has sought you. And that's what the gospel of truth is. And so we need to be clear about what is truth and what ultimately is true in the world. How do we live our lives? What's going to happen in the end? What's the basis for our belief in any religion or no religion or Christianity? Because if we aren't clear about that, then obedience really is, doesn't matter. But the motivation for your obedience is very, very important. And so my own spiritual journey um, of growing up in the church um, and then going to college and having a faith that was, I would say, obviously was strong, but was really just kind of emotional. I didn't have a lot to tether to the ground. I didn't know theology. I didn't know philosophy. I just kind of loved Jesus, and, and that's good and great, but it's not enough when you go to a college that doesn't believe in Jesus, right? And so I took a class my freshman year, Intro to Biblical Literature, uh, from a uh, professor um, who was also actually an Episcopalian priest, and uh, he had a PhD from Harvard, and he walked in the first day, and he was like, hey, everything that, you know, you've been taught about the Bible is wrong, right? And he began to deconstruct how the Bible was just kind of a historical document. It wasn't actually inspired, how Jesus was a good moral teacher, and all these things. I remember thinking, wow, I don't actually think Christianity is true, <laughs> And there was part of me that kind of said, well, I know that it is true, but I really don't have any reason to base my life on it, except that I kind of grew up in the church, right? And so when you have all these arguments coming at you, and I want to raise my hand, but I'm not sure what I'm going to say if he calls on me, why he's wrong, right? It's like, I know this can't be, but God, actually, I don't think that maybe God is this way. I think that God is maybe not kind. Maybe he is cruel. And maybe some of the Old Testament stories are not true. We should just kind of take those out. And I kind of began this year and a half, two-year journey of me being very skeptical of Christianity. And so I began to explore other religions. I began to, I kind of quit going to church for a while. And I began to say, you know what, Christianity, I'm sure is kind of well and good, but it's not ultimately true. There are a lot of, you know, ways to truth. And, and this may be one of them. But I was like, but I know there's something out there that is true. And I want to find out what that is. And so I began to, you know, read other things and, and listen to other things. And um, I, I decided that I don't want to believe in Christianity only because it's helpful. I want to believe in it because it's true. Like it's objectively true. If it's helpful, that's great. But if it's not true, then it's really ridiculous. Right? The world has plenty of good advice. The plenty of have plenty of good wisdom. The world does not need any more of that. The world needs what is true. And so I kind of just began this journey. Well, I thought as part of it, what I would do is actually read the scriptures from the beginning to the end. Right, what a novel idea. <laughs> actually read the word for the first time in my life. Like fully kind of investigate who is God? Did he rise from the dead? Is it reliable? And so I just kind of, be, I opened, 
a word and I began to read through it. And what I found in the Old Testament with the prophets was just, I, was, I hadn't read through the prophets before because most people, we just don't. And I remember thinking all the questions I had about God and the way in which he worked and the way in which he operated, I thought, well, actually, there's a prophet Jeremiah and there's a prophet Amos. And in God's word, they're asking the same questions that I'm asking. And I remember thinking, I have that question too. And there it is right there on the page in the scriptures. And then I began to think, wow, if there is a God, he seems big enough and okay enough with including in his word people who question him and people who doubt him. And then I remember thinking, wow, that seems different from any other God that I've encountered. And it kind of began my journey back to um, really um, understanding the heart of the gospel. And I began to see that, um, that Christianity really actually was true. That, that truth was, for me, not just a set of ideas. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments. It was the person who embodied those commandments. It was Jesus. And so at the center of Christianity was Jesus. And I was like, this makes sense now. And I really believe that Jesus rose from that. I believe there's good evidence for that. And this then became my world view. And so I now was shaped by something that was true, not just something that I wanted to be true. It actually was the truth. And then it became something inside of me, like it became something that was inside of me, that grabbed hold of me, that found me. In my whole time of seeking the truth, it was actually the truth that came and got me and saved me, even if all my questions about God weren't answered. I still have questions that God hasn't answered, and I will have those questions forever. But I've gotten to a place in my faith where I say, you know what? I really believe that what is ultimately true is the way and the life found through Jesus. And that living in him and obeying him is where life is found. And funny, to the end of the story, um, I, I took some more classes from that professor um, and just really shaped my worldview, and I became just you know, a Christian who loved Jesus with my heart and felt like it made sense to me logically and intellectually, and, and it really just kind of came together. It was awesome. And my professor at, at the school in Greenville, South Carolina, where I went to college, is now actually the pastor at uh, Grace Episcopal Church in the square in downtown Madison. You know the church down there? And so about a year ago, I, I found him, and I uh, had lunch with him, and uh, he's this guy from the Northeast, and we're having lunch. He's like, yeah, R.D., Greenville, South Carolina was just too conservative for me, so we came to Madison and thought this would be a better place for our church. And I thought, <laughs> you're right, this is a place where you can be a part of a church and actually not believe in Orthodox Christianity. And he was like, eh, well, you know, it is what it is. I was like, yeah. Like, you know what, actually, and so I told him the story, kind of my faith journey. I said, you know what, Dr. Greaser, actually, um, the way in which you pressed me, the way in which you, you asked these questions made me investigate what was true really for me. And actually, it made me a very robust Christian where I actually became orthodox in my faith. I remember his face. It was like, what? <laughs> like, you investigated all this, and you read the scriptures, and you, like, actually believe in the Jesus of faith and, right, the Jesus of history. And I was like... I do, and I actually preach that to people. And he was like, oh, isn't that nice for you? That's good. That's great. And that's the mindset of, of very many people. What John wants to say to his church, what he wants to say to his people is he's going to say, you will never live out the truth of the gospel if the truth has not invaded your heart. It's not just mental ascent. I believe things about God. I believe these true things about God, but I believe in Jesus. And the truth is not just something I'm seeking after, but it's found me. And that's what separates Christianity from every other religion, every other philosophy. Truth is active and alive. It's beautiful. And John's saying, 
we know, verse 3, we know that we've come to know him, to trust him, to be in him if we keep his commands. And now we're obeying Jesus out of love for him, not to earn his love. Right? Follow him because you love him. Don't just follow him um, because you have to or follow him because you think it's what you're supposed to do. Follow Jesus, obey Jesus, keep his commands because his commands are for your joy. Right? Obey him because you love him. In our culture, right, in the church or outside the church, you hear a pastor say, obey Jesus, obey God. And what most people hear is, okay, I follow the rules and that really robs me of being happy. Right? God wants to rob me of my happiness by making me obey all these like rules. And what I want to say to you, no, happiness is not found in following the rules. Happiness is found in following the rule maker. Because God creates boundaries for us and he says, if you live here, if you follow these rules, it's not just so that I am this big God who wants to control you, but if you live your life this way, you would find joy and meaning and purpose. It works like this. This is how I've set it up. And so John is telling his people, he's saying, follow Jesus because you love Jesus and the truth is in you. In fact, in the next verse, he talks about that. Verse four, he says, whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. A lot of people are going to say I know him. A lot of people are going to say I, I follow him. A lot of people are going to say, yeah, Jesus, I'm with him. He's going to say, look at their life. Look at the way in which they're living. Are they following Jesus to make much of Jesus? Are they following Jesus to really make much of them and check some things off a list, a religious list? Because that's not following Jesus. That's following morality or rules or something else that's foreign to the gospel. John's saying a lot of people are going to say, I know him. Look at their life. If they truly know him, they're obeying him because they've been loved by him, not to earn love from him. It's very easy to tell. What is the motivation for your obedience? And when you hear obedience, do you think duty or do you think delight? If you think delight, you've been found by Jesus. If you think duty, I think there's a journey that you still are on. Because God's commands are good. If anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. So here's how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This verse kind of wrecked me this week, and I was like, wow, okay. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. Not whoever claims to live in him must be moral. Whoever claims to live in him must, must be this type of person. But whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lived. Wow, is that, is that the standard? That John, John's saying this is the standard. Live as Jesus lived. Obviously, we can't sacrifice our life for the sake of the world but we can follow the way of the cross, which is the way of sacrifice. It's the way of real love by giving your life away. This is what it actually means to follow Jesus, that Jesus is, is someone who shows us that being a good person is not what ultimately brings you to heaven. And that if we want to follow Jesus, it's the hard road. But it's a very good road because he's on the road and he is the one who brings us all the way home. Tim Keller has a great quote where he talks about this. He says, the basic premise of religion, that if you live a good life, things will go well for you is wrong. Jesus was the most morally upright person who ever lived, yet he had a life filled with experience of poverty, rejection, injustice, and even torture. He's saying, hey, Michael Bloomberg, 
It doesn't work like that, right? You are only going to be able to live like Jesus if you've been found by Jesus. If your identity is not forming your spirituality, then it'll, it'll just be a crazy kind of wash of a lot of different things. John's saying if you are in Christ, if you've been united to Christ, then you can live as Jesus lived with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way it works. And some people will live in certain ways like Jesus lived, but at the essence of what it means to live like Jesus is to glorify God with your life and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus personified as a person. So we just have to ask the question, is your life like the life of Jesus? Are you imitating Jesus with the way in which you live your life? Because obedience at this base level just means this, loving Jesus with your life. And the rules will follow after that. If you start with the rules, you'll never get to Jesus. If you start with Jesus, the rules will follow naturally. This is the order of the gospel. C.S. Lewis, of course, always saying what I wish I could say. He talks about it this way. To have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you've really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you're trying to obey him, but trying in a new way. This is great. A less worried way. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. Right, here's the motivation for obedience, that God has already done a great thing in my life, that the truth already is inside of me, and now I want to proclaim that truth to the Lord. And so I'm following him, because that's what it means to love him, is to follow him. And the only way I can follow him is if I actually know him. And so John's just being very clear. Do you know him? Here's how you know that you know you follow him, and you delight in following him to make much of Jesus. So then he keeps going. In the second section here, Verse 7, he says, Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. The old command is the message you've heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. See, this is a powerful passage here where the, the old command is to love God and love your neighbor. But now there's a new command, which is actually the same command, it's just had flesh put on it. Right? The new command is still to love God and love your neighbor. Now we see that Jesus was the full embodiment of this command. He loved God fully and he loved his neighbors fully. In fact, he gave up his entire life for them. And what John is saying, he's saying the truth of that is seen in Jesus. Right? If you want to see what love is, look to Jesus. He embodies what love is. But not only is it in him, but now if he is in you, this is what's great. That truth is seen in him and it's seen in you. That love is seen in you because the darkness is passing away and the light is coming. And so now we live in between the times, right? The light is here, but it's not fully here. There's still a lot of darkness out there. Jesus is saying, would you be a people of the light? Would you live in the light as you love one another? Because Jesus is love. He modeled this love. So as you follow him, you should be loving each other well. Because he lives in you, and then you live out that in your life. What God has done in you, we want to see out there in the world. God wants to keep doing that in the world. Verses 9 through 11 
Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or a sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or a sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. John's now just applying this to the church, and he's saying, guys, the way in which you love each other makes much of Jesus. Right? We know that God loves us because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And now the world will know how much God loves us by the way in which we love each other. Right? The way in which the church loves each other is our greatest apologetic to the world. Right? Because a lot of people aren't going to care about your doctrine. They're not going to come to the church. But they will see, man, how much do they love each other. They're so different. They believe all these different things about politics and economics and culture. But they're united by this one person, it seems like. There's this truth that kind of unites all of them together. What is that? Well, it's Jesus and his love is in us. His truth is in us. And we can't help but live that out because it's just a part of us. It's just it's who we are. Wherever we are, the truth of Jesus is in us. doesn't matter where we are, what we're doing, what we're talking about, Jesus is in us. And so now we're loving our brothers and our sisters really well, even if we don't always like them, even if we don't always agree with them. But how many people have a bitter story about a church that did not love people well? You have that story. Someone you know has that story. People that I know who've left the church because they just say, you know what, there's just a lot of politics. There's just a lot of gossip. There's just a lot of anger towards people. John says, don't be those people. Don't be that. That is not why Jesus gave up his life. He gave up his life that he could light the way so that you and I could love each other, even though we're massively different. That's the great news. All of us have different stories, and all of us have the same story, that we are sinners in need of God's grace, and God's grace has found us. I don't know your specific story. I know this is true about your story. God saved you, and he brought you into his family, and that's true of everyone in here who's in Christ. Right? Everyone has a different biography. Everyone has the same biography. That's what's great about the gospel. It's great, great, great news. John just says, hey, if you're in the darkness, you can't see. And Christians are people who can see where they're going. They see the world as it is. They see where the world is headed. They see what the truth is. They, are, they can see where they're going. They're not causing other people to stumble because of the way in which they're loving each other. People who are in the darkness are making other people stumble by the way in which they're not loving each other really well. John says, be a church that radically loves each other. Not because everyone deserves it, but because we're powered by the love of Jesus. And the world looks from the outside in and says, what's going on in there? They're, they're, they love each other like crazy. They're giving their lives away like crazy. It's not just some social club where they go and get some rah, rah, rah cheers and then go out. They actually love each other and care about each other. Well, how is that possible? Well, it's actually not possible outside of the grace of Jesus. Right? And that's what Jesus is saying. That's what John is saying to his church. And that's what we're reading right now. And John's saying to Door Creek Church, he's saying, hey, how are you loving each other? Is your love like the love of Jesus? Is your life like the life of Jesus? There's a way to live for Jesus, to do things in the name of Jesus that actually doesn't honor Jesus. Right? There's a way to live your life in such a way where you're obeying Jesus or you're doing things for Jesus that in the end Jesus says, I don't want any of that. Right? What do I mean? Well, Matthew chapter 7 says this, it'll be on the screen. Sober words this morning. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, this is chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, if there's a more sobering text for Christians in the Bible, I don't know what it is. Because it's not about the things that you do for Jesus. It's about realizing what he's done for you and living in that. Right? People are going to say to the Lord, I mean, this, we're applying it to today. There'll be people in churches all across this country and the world today who will say, Jesus, we did all these things in your name, right? We did all these things for you. I taught Awana for years for you. I was a youth leader for years for in your name. I did all these things. And, and Jesus is going to say, yeah, but you never did it in my power. You never actually knew me. You just did all these things for me. You were like some rogue branch disconnected from the vine. And so when, when push comes to shove, I'm just going to tell you plainly, I didn't know you because you didn't know me. And yeah, you helped out at church, and yeah, you did this. That's Who cares if it's not connected to me? Because I am is what truth is. This is what life is. It's found in me. And so as a pastor, I just want to always be putting before people, are you living your life in the power of the Spirit because you love Jesus? Are you abiding in Jesus? Or are you not? And we're like, well, <laughs> some days yes, some days no. And so there's encouragement for us as we close here. Verses 1 and 2 of 1 John end with the gospel, the gospel good news. So we want to be abiding in Jesus. We want to be striving after Jesus. We want to be doing all these things for Jesus. But at the end of the day, if Jesus is not in the middle of it, then it's all going to fail. If it's just our effort, our power, our desire, it will fail. And so John reminds his church of the great truth of where power comes from, of where truth resides. Verse 1 of chapter 2, he says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, which I just love. He's a pastor. He's not just saying, hey, guys. He's not like, hey, group of people. I don't know. He's saying, you are my children, right? You're my spiritual children. I care for you. I love you. I want you to not sin because sin separates you from joy. Sin moves you away from joy. So children, if there's one thing not to do, don't sin. Run to Jesus. Run away from a sin because it is enticing. It's deceiving. But at the end of the day, it will leave you lonely and empty and broken. It promises life, it delivers death. And as a pastor, that's what I always want to tell people because in front of me all the time, week by week, I see the patterns of sin in people's lives and my heart just says, would you stop sinning and would you turn to Jesus? John, as a pastor, is just saying, guys, stop. I don't want you to sin. But, but, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's just going to be really going to say, he's going to say, I don't want you to sin, but you're still probably going to sin. And when that happens, when you fall short, when you make mistakes, when you act this way in your marriage, when you act this way at your job, when you treat your kids this way as a kid, when you treat your parents this way, great news. You are not in despair. We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So for in all the ways that we fall short, we have someone who vouches for us before God that all the ways that we fall short is covered by the grace of Jesus. In the Greek, 
Um, the phrase advocate actually means to come alongside. So imagine someone coming alongside you to bring you all the way home. That's what Jesus does for us. And so I thought to illustrate this, I'd tell a story, which I hope illustrates it, but I just want to tell the story as well. So and I get to, so there you go. <clears throat> uh, a few weeks ago, I ran the Lake Mono 20K, which was a terrible idea because I almost died. You know, I actually might have died at mile six and been, I, I'm not sure what happened half of the race, but I finished it. I signed up before I, I um, became a dad back in the fall, and uh, I was training all fall, and then we had twin girls, and so training kind of stopped. Uh, obviously, they didn't want me to train, apparently. They wanted me to stay home and change diapers and just worship them, and so now that's what I do. And, but my wife was like, you signed up, you got to do it. And I was like, as a man, I'm like, okay. I can't not do it. I got to do it. So uh, race day came, and it was a 20K, so all around Lake Manila, which is 12.4 miles. And um, I was like, oh, my gosh. And so um, I, I was at the front of the pack, kind of, when the gun went off, and I'm running, you know, fast. I'm like, this is pretty good. And then about 15 yards in, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be the worst day of my life. Like, <laughs> 15 yards in, I'm like, this is it. I felt like the first half mile, I felt like a gimpy gazelle, and all these other gazelles are like, passing me quickly. Like, no, I'm not passing anyone. No one else is passing each other. They're just all like in mass passing me. And I'm thinking, how, where is the person who's going to be at my pace? Where's the person who's running like my speed? And I see my wife at the, like the first mile marker and everyone turns left to go on Winnequa, I think. And she was kind of at the right towards the road. And so I'm running and I kind of do this like towards her. And she's like, keep running the race. Like, you know, finish this race. Like, be a man. You have daughters. What are you doing? And so since we live in Monona, I thought like the first couple of miles, I was like, I was like, God, what if I turn around? Like, what would I tell my wife? What would I tell my kids? Like, I, I can't, that would just be shameful. I got to finish the race. And so uh, about the, like mile six, once you're around Lake Monona, it doesn't matter at that point. If you go back or go the other way, it doesn't matter. So at that point, I'm like, okay, now I got to finish it because there's no, I can't, if I swim across the lake, maybe, but that seems like it'd be harder. And so I don't want to do that. And so I'm doing the race, and about the seventh, seventh mile mark, um, I see two guys in front of me, and uh, they have, they're holding a rag between them. And I'm like, what is going on here? And uh, so I was kind of behind him for like half a mile, and one guy on the left who was kind of holding the rag more strongly, kind of a head just a little bit, he looked like a Marine hardcore dude. He had shaved head, didn't have a shirt on, like short shorts. I mean, he's like killing it. I'm like, this guy could finish this race in like 20 minutes. But he has this rag he's holding. Like, it's a rag that's like just this big, and it's kind of old. And I'm like, why are these guys holding this rag? So one guy, the Marine guy, has it in his right, his right hand. The other guy has it in his left hand. And I'm thinking, the effort that that takes to do 12.4 miles, like holding a rag, what? Like, why are they doing this? And so I have all these ideas, like they're trying to get bigger muscles in their arms, or like they're just really like connected somehow. This is an interesting relationship. And so then, as I finally get the strength to like pass them, like, okay, I, I, I should pass them. And uh, so I look back, and I see that the guy on the right is visually impaired. Right? He's blind. He can't, he can't see. And I was like, that is awesome. That is unbelievable. And so I, I got to the finish line, and I waited and, uh, for a few minutes, and I saw them come across the finish line together at the same time. And I thought, you know, this is not actually a bad idea of what Jesus, our advocate, is like. Right? That he, he holds much more than a rag, but in a sense, right, we are the ones who are blind. And I guarantee you that Marine was never, ever letting go of that rag. But what do you think the cost was for him to run 12.4 miles holding a rag and basically pulling another person with him the whole time? 
And sometimes the guy who was blind would want to kind of go to the right or, or he'd kind of get ahead and the guy would just kind of grab it and he'd move it a little bit further, he'd move it this way, and, but they came across the finish line. Right? In the Greek, the word advocate means to come alongside. And Jesus comes alongside of us and he's the one who holds on to the rag and he's the one who ensures that we also will hold on to the rag, even if sometimes we don't feel like it. And he's the one who brings us across the finish line. Right? He's our advocate. He vouches for us before the Father and he says, our D is good, not because he is good, but because I made him good. But the father is not a judge who is like indifferent. He's not, he's not evil God and then there's good God, right? Jesus is good God, father God is bad God, right? It's not like the judge is like, okay, mm, Jesus, what's the case? You know, and Jesus is like, here are all the things, right? That sometimes is how we think about because the judges are usually not portrayed super positively. But get this, the judge in this understanding, God the father, actually appoints the advocate, right? And so the judge is actually for us just as much as the advocate is for us. So God the Father, it's his idea to send the Son to be our advocate, to advocate for us and say, he's mine, he's my son. And so we can always know that God is for us and not against us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor back in the last century in London, he said this, he said, Jesus Christ is the appointed one by God the Father. Therefore, get rid once and forever of the idea that God is against you. It is God who appointed the Son to his particular task of advocacy. So comfort yourself with this thought. The advocate has been appointed by the judge. The Father, in his everlasting love, has himself set his Son apart and appointed him for this particular task. Come to your advocate, therefore, with confidence and assurance. The judge is good. The advocate is good. It's Jesus Christ. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father who vouches for us. How does he vouch for us? Verse 2, final verse. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. How he becomes our advocate is that he becomes the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Otherly translated with the word propitiation, which is a big word that makes you spit a lot of things. It's a biblical word that means that there is wrath for sin, and Jesus becomes the propitiation for the wrath of God. He turns away the wrath of God by bearing it himself. He says, I advocate for them because they're mine. I paid the penalty for all of their wandering, for all of their prodigalness. I paid for it. And the father says, yes, you did. Come home. Right? Because there's wrath for sin. Either you pay the wrath or Jesus pays the wrath. And Jesus says, hey, I got this. I'm right next to you. I'm going to bring you all the way home. And so we don't face the judge in fear. We face him with love. And this then motivates our obedience. Right? This is the ground level for what obedience is. Not, oh, I hope when I get before the judge, I've done enough. I hope I've earned my way to heaven because of all that I've done with my life. What an uncertain way to live. What a fearful way to live. Jesus says, you know that you know because the truth is in you. I sacrificed my life for it. And now I know you're in me if that's the motivation for your obedience. Do you love me? And that's why you serve me. 
We have an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I'll finish with this idea. I mentioned it earlier. John is saying, hey, church, great news. God loves you. God cares for you. God's forgiven you. But guess what? It's not just for you. Right? It's not just about, okay, now we get to be in this huddle, and now we just get to exist because the whole world is just going to hell, so whatever, but we're good. Right? John's saying it's not just for you. It's for the world. Right, this message is for the entire world. It's not just for this small group of people um, in the Middle East, and thank the Lord it's not, because otherwise it would never have gotten to where we live, right? And so they said, you know what? It's not just for us. It's for everyone. And it doesn't matter your biography. It doesn't matter your story. It doesn't matter your past. All you need is need, and to come to him. And nothing else matters. That is why Christians, unlike any other religion, they exist in every pocket of the world, in every socioeconomic status, every gender, every culture, right? They're Christians in New York City. They're Christians in Madison. They're Christians in South America. They're Christians in London, right? They're Christians in Asia. They're Christians in Australia. They were Christians 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago. They're Christians now. They'll be Christians 1,000 years from now, right? They're Christians who, can, who are PhDs. They're Christians who cannot spell PhDs, right? There are people all over over the map. But guess what unites them? Jesus Christ and what he's done for them. We may not be able to speak the same language. We may not be able to know anything about each other, but we have brothers and sisters all around the world who call upon the name of the Lord, who say the sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient for every single person who comes to him with need. No matter how you come, no matter where you come from, no matter, your, no matter anything about you, it doesn't matter. All that melts away when we see his face. All you need is need, and to know that he is the truth. And that he's not just helpful, he's not just kind of there to make you feel better, he actually is the truest thing in the world. And if that truth gets inside of you, it'll change you, it'll change the world. And the church exists to be that city on a hill, to be that light. And John is saying, he's, he's kind of had these final words, he's about to pass away for his church. He's saying, I walked with Jesus I saw, I was there when Jesus was crucified. I saw what love looks like. My dear children, would you love each other that way? The way in which Jesus loved us. Would you obey him because you've been loved by him? And in your obedience, would you find life? Hey, let's pray. Our Father, we love you. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for Pastor John who wrote this word to a group of people, encouraging them, saying, would you know Jesus? Would you obey him because you love him? I pray that for us today, that we would not hear the word obedience and think what we have to do, but what we want to do. And Father, that all the rules that you've put down, Father, they're for our good. And would we move past that and get to you and experiencing you and trusting you and running after you? And so I pray, Father, for everyone in the room, wherever we are spiritually, whatever we believe about you, Father, would we know that you are true, that you're real, that you exist. Father, we're thankful that you came alongside us and you pull us all the way across the finish line. We really are blind. But at great cost to yourself, you hold us. And you bring us home. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.